And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, July 7th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Jarris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, this group is called Few. Luckily, there's more than just a few of them. Plus, archiving things is not the sleepy job you might think it is. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, a new explanation has emerged for the Defense Department's sudden cancellation of a $374 million program to replace its much-maligned defense travel system. But for members of Congress, the latest rationale raised as many questions as it answered, enough to warrant a House oversight hearing on that issue. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu has been following the travel system replacement saga. He joins me with an update. And Jared, why don't we start with what they said were the first reasons for canceling this program in the first place? Yeah, the the, the original reasons that DOD gave us, gave other members of the media, gave the public were... Didn't make a lot of sense, frankly. They said the the actual reasons that they canceled this program was, one, that travel volume has been significantly lower in the post-COVID-19 era, and therefore there was less of a need for this system. That's a little hard to swallow because what we do know about DOD's actual travel outlays in the post-pandemic era really is only 2022 data. But 2022 was the highest level of travel spending the DOD has had in about a decade with $8.4 billion, so a pretty significant amount. A secondary reason is they just kind of vaguely indicated that they're more focused on auditability now, which also is a little bit questionable because I've never quite heard that introducing a new modern IT system is a problem for auditability. Usually the concern is older systems, legacy systems that were never designed with financial audits in mind, which is, as we know, pretty pervasive throughout DOD. And those reasons didn't sit well with Capitol Hill either then, you found out. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. So members of the House Oversight Committee requested a briefing with DOD, and at that point they got a completely different explanation from the department, which was the main problem is that the interfaces between what this new travel system would be, my travel and DOD's existing legacy financial management systems, just were not ready. We're not going to be ready. And so essentially they could not make this largely commercial system work with DOD's financial management infrastructure, which is a slightly more logical explanation. But the, the question it raises for Congress, and one thing that I know that they're really going to look into when this hearing happens next month, is going to be okay, guys, you've had more than five years to work on this and and start thinking through how all of that interfacing is going to come to pass. And in fact, a memo from Gil Cisneros, the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness, last fall specifically directed all of the military components to start preparing those interfaces. It's unclear how much of that work actually happened. We know it happened to some extent because, according to DOD's budget proposal for 2024, basically all of the defense agencies had already migrated from the defense travel system to my travel. And that same budget proposal indicated military services would migrate by the end of this year. That's another reason this this change seemed so abrupt, because in that same memo I mentioned from Gil Cisneros last fall, he also directed all of the military services and defense agencies to migrate to this new system by this summer. It was, in effect, mandatory up until another memo in May, which basically said, never mind, we're canceling the entire system. So as I said, very abrupt and very unexplained at the time. We have a slightly more plausible explanation now. But as I said, Congress not completely satisfied with what they've heard so far. Well, that raises a couple of questions. One, you would think that the interfaces to the financial system would be the first thing they would work on when they hired a contractor. 
And then secondly, those that had already migrated to it, do they have to now yank it out and go back to the old system? That's exactly what they have to do. They've been told to cease um, all new bookings in my travel by mid-July and revert back to defense travel system. Again, that would really only affect the defense agencies that have already made the migration. But yes, they will, in fact, have to do that. And to your other question, yeah, we do know that to some extent, SAP Concur and their partners had been working on a lot of this interface and preparatory work as part of the sole source contract that they were issued for originally $374 million in September 2021. A lot of that work involved integrating this commercial product with the rather Byzantine uh, defense travel regulations and DOD's IT infrastructure. In fact, in the justification and approval that DOD first issued that justified that sole source contract, one of the big reasons that they gave is that SAP Concur had already done all of this work, and if they went out with a full and open competition, some new potential vendor would have to repeat a lot of the work that they had already done. I just can't emphasize how much DOD said this system was essential in that original JNA, Tom. They said any other approach besides doing this sole source contract would set them back years. They described it in fairly urgent terms, needing to move away from the legacy defense travel system. Um, because of its inefficiencies, its user unfriendliness. And, oh, by the way, we should also point out that a government accountability office report has found that um, even just in the years between 2016 and 2018, DTS alone was responsible for about a billion dollars in improper payments. So yet another reason that that you would want to start moving away from this legacy system. But as of now, they are basically back to ground zero after several years of work. And if you look at the the electronic health record that the DOD is well into and then take DTS, both of them and many other systems that they would modernize have to interact with their legacy financial systems. And that seems to point to the need to get that modernized. That's something they've been working on for many years also, right? Yeah, that's right. And this feels to me like a case of, you know, sacrificing a a new system at the altar of the legacy systems because they are so ingrained rather than fixing the problems with the legacy systems, which we know are a huge problem for auditability in the Department of Defense. We know about half of the notices of findings and recommendations that auditors have found throughout the military services and defense agencies are directly related to IT deficiencies in those legacy systems. So I think a lot of people would be a little bit disheartened to see that those legacy systems are the reason we can't modernize some other piece of the IT infrastructure. Yeah, so my travel then is going away totally. And how much have they sunk into it of that $347 million project? That is the good news, if there is any good news here. There's been relatively little spent on this so far. About $23 million is what we know about. That was uh, to design the initial prototype and for the first couple years getting it up and running with those initial test users. So this is not a case where DOD has sunk a billion dollars into a project and then had to cancel it. What they have lost is a lot of time here. I think that's the main issue. Um, but but, but that, that $23 million number may also not be completely inclusive because we don't have any real good documentation of what's been spent on any of that initial interface work. That's just what um, has gone to SAP Concur under this exact contract. And going back to one of your earlier questions, though, you know, comparing this to MHS Genesis, although MHS Genesis certainly had its issues, especially in the early days, one thing that distinguishes my travel and this contracting approach that they took 
from something like MHS Genesis is it was all negotiated as an other transaction agreement that never went through any kind of FAR-based procurement process. And I don't frankly know the extent to which that may have been in play here, but one would think in a more traditional FAR Part 15 or FAR Part 12 contract, you would have more extensive testing and evaluation of the product, and you would know about some of those interface issues a little bit earlier, or you would you would have the traditional processes in place to make sure that kind of thing was good to go before you made a significant investment of, of investment of money and time. And the real question then beyond that is if you're going with a commercial product that thousands of corporations use, why an OTA in the first place? It could end up giving OTA a bad name. I think part of this was precisely because DoD felt like they could do a lot better by just implementing a commercial solution. And in fact, this was the second attempt at doing something like that. The Defense Digital Service earlier also built its own prototype using a largely commercial approach. And after that experience, I think there just was a sense that, you know, an OTA process would be the simplest way to go out and just buy something off the shelf and get it prototyped, do do whatever interface work you need to do to, again, make it work with the pretty different defense travel rules that, that have to be in place that are different from what commercial companies use. But yeah, I think speed was also a factor here. There's always been a bit of C to try to move away from this defense travel system, which DOD officials have been pointing out for years is just inadequate to the need and, again, responsible for a lot of improper payments. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, archiving things is not the sleepy job you might think it is. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The National Archives is more than just a bunch of warehouses filled with old paper. Archiving and managing records is a profession unto itself. And now the Archives National Historical Publications and Records Commission has established a new leadership institute at the University of Virginia. Here with the details, University Archivist Brenda Gunn. Ms. Gunn, good to have you on. Hi, Tom. It's great to be here. And the Commission's Director for Access Programs, Nancy Melly. Ms. Melly, good to have you with us. Good morning, Tom. How are you? All right. And Nancy, let's begin with just a little bit of background on the National Historical Publications and Records Commission, a unit of the archives. What's that all about? Well, the commission was actually founded at the same time as the archives back in 1934, but didn't really do anything really until the early 50s when someone handed... President Truman, a copy of the papers, and he wrote a note saying, this is really good stuff. We should encourage this. The commission then started meeting regularly and endorsing documentary editions. Documentary editions are publications of writings by people with contextual annotations and explanatory essays and something that historians like to do. Got it. So a lot of these things don't have multiple copies or many, many multiple copies, but there might be one more that has a note on the side and then you'd want that. Right. If you want to take a good look at actually what documentary editions might look like in a digital age, Founders Online is a great place to start. Okay. Well, we will certainly do that. I want to get to the University of Virginia and there is now a new center there. Ms. Gunn, tell us what's going on there. Thanks, Tom. I'm glad to do it. And it's good to be with Nancy because she and I were in Archives Leadership cohort together in, well, we won't tell the date, will we, Nancy? 
but it was in the earlier days of the Institute. But it was after Harry Truman, though. It was. It was after Harry <laughs> Truman, quite a bit, actually, after Truman. But um, so the University of Virginia will be the host of the Archives Leadership Institute in its next iteration. There's been the original institute, which was at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Then it moved to Luther College in Decorah, Iowa, then to Berea College in Berea, Kentucky, and then most recently to Purdue University. So we're the fifth iteration of what I think is a growing tradition in investment in leadership in the profession that NHPRC has made. And we're real appreciative, obviously, of NHPRC's support for University of Virginia's iteration. And what happens at these leadership institutes, the one you have now, and how does it support mm -hmm. the mission of the National Archives? Well, we'll have 25 archivists or memory workers join us here in Charlottesville, and we'll be talking about big picture issues in the archival field. And so in that respect, it supports NHPRC's mission as NHPRC is very invested from the beginning, as Nancy said, in the archival record and good stewardship. And that's what the memory workers and archivists who will come to Charlottesville and who've been a part of ALI from the beginning, what we're doing. We're working in various situations, university archives, government archives, state, local records, museum setting. So we're spread out all over the U.S. and coming at it from a variety of different situations. So we're looking forward to having 25 more memory workers here in Charlottesville. And we'll be discussing things like responsible stewardship and partnerships with community members and community archives. We'll be looking at, of course, the individual, what self-knowledge and growth you know, who you are as a leader and how your capacity can be built over time. And we'll talk about organizational leadership through a five-day intensive experience. All right. We're speaking with Brenda Gunn. She's an archivist at the University of Virginia and with Nancy Melly, Director for Access Programs at the Archives National Historical Publications and Records Commission. And just quickly, this is a residence program for that period of time, or is this something that runs on and on throughout the year? It's a residence program. We're inviting 25 individuals to leave their homes wherever they are across the U.S. and descend on Charlottesville. They'll be living in probably one of the newer dormitories, residence halls here on the campus of the University of Virginia. And we'll walk to class every day, Monday through Friday, which will probably be in the Special Collections Library. And we'll have a set curriculum for the week, and that'll include some interaction with faculty. It'll include conversations and discussions with our steering committee. We even have plans to have some peer mentoring and peer cohort created experiential learning. But we also are going to get off campus and go out into sure. the community. Yeah, well, it's a nice mm -hmm. town down there, and yes. there are lots yes. of worse places to spend five days <laughs> than in and around true. Charlottesville. Nancy, will some federal people be attending also, or are these people from state and local archives and so on? There will be potentially federal attendees, federal archivists who attend. From what I can remember of the Institute statistics, there have been one or two federal attendees in each cohort. So... 
we're talking about somewhere between 15 and 20 federal archivists who have gone through the program. One of the things that I think we find useful at NHPRC is that we're helping archivists develop different muscles. So archivists know how to be archivists, but they don't necessarily know how to be managers or supervisors or leaders in the profession. Something like, I want to say six or seven out of the last 10 presidents of the Society of American Archivists, our national professional organization, have been graduates of ALI. Interesting. And by the way, can someone define the term memory worker? I confess I've never heard that term. It's a, I think, a collective noun for archivists, records managers, curators, people who work in the library, archives, and museum sector. So people who make sure we don't forget, and if we do, we have a place to look it up. Yeah, I think it's really, it's an interesting term to me, and it's relatively new, and we want it to be inclusive of the program, Nancy knows that the intention is to bring in people who work in a variety of settings. And not everyone identifies at specifically as an archivist, although they may be doing archival work. So we use the term memory worker as more of an inclusive term and to make sure that, you know, as many people can see themselves in this program as possible. And to the question about will there be federal archivist there. We certainly hope so. I mean, we intend to advertise ALI and this next iteration as widely as possible. And the cohorts really work when you have a diverse group of people from different settings, different parts of the country. And aside from whether presidents or ex-presidents should store archival records in garages <laughs> or chandeliered bathrooms, what are some of the big issues in archiving now these days? I mean, what kinds of things will you all discuss down there? I think we're going to really focus on the archivist and archives and our place. And, and what I mean by that is we're going to use the University of Virginia's built environment the Rotunda and the Academical Village and some of the events that have happened here over the last five, six years to talk about leadership in terms of some really tough subjects. You know, a history of enslavement, that's certainly something that the University of Virginia continues to grapple with. And it doesn't matter if you're at an institute of higher education or a museum or a corporation, you probably have some history to deal with. And so one of the things I think we're going to make sure we discuss with the cohort is narrative corrections. How do you be truthful about your organization's history? And as we like to say, as Elaine Westbrook, who is an esteemed leader of the Cornell University Library, she said, the receipts are in the archives. And I love that quote because the documentation for some of our, you know, events, big events in the country's history, for small event in local history, whatever, the receipts are in the archives, that evidence is there, and that's what we're here to steward. But other things that we'll be talking about is also relationship building and trust building. One of the big topics in the archival field right now has to do with community archives, such as you can consider indigenous archives and Native American tribes 
and we'll be talking about the University of Virginia's growing relationship with some of the Virginia Indian tribes and their archival work. All right. Uh, Nancy, anything to add? Again, the big trends in archiving. I agree with Brenda. The community-driven archives is a very big trend. Making sure that the entirety of our constituencies see themselves in the archival record, whether that is doing expanded description of records so that they are more easily identified as coming from the community or affecting the community, or whether it is actually engaging the community in contributing records to the archives so that they can be preserved for the long term. Another trend that I see coming up fairly frequently is, and I don't know the best term for this, Brenda, you actually probably know that, know more about this than I do, is trauma-related collections. How we respectfully present material that was created out of trauma, but still make it available as best we can. Right. Trauma-informed archival practice, it is a very, very big thing. And we do have that on the agenda for sure. And it's not, when we think about trauma-informed practice, we're not just thinking about our researchers who come into the reading room. We definitely are thinking about them and their responses to some potentially difficult subject matter in the materials they're, they're looking at. But we're also thinking about our memory workers, our archivists, and our exhibition curators who may be dealing with the same difficult information as they process a collection and they do description or they're preparing an exhibition. So that's, yes, that's definitely going to be on the agenda for the week. Sounds like an exciting field, even more than I realized at the start here. Brenda Gunn is an archivist at the University of Virginia. Thanks so much for joining me. You're welcome. Thanks for the invitation. And Nancy Melly is Director for Access Programs at the National Historical Publications and Records Commission of the National Archives. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having us. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Archive the Federal Drive on your device. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, how two agencies are squeezing that security clearance calendar. But first, this group is called Few. Luckily, there's more than a few of them. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Federally employed women, few, has a new president. Well, maybe not quite so new now, but we're getting in touch with her. She's got ideas. Pamela Richards is also a supervisory investigative research analyst at the GAO, and she joins me now. Ms. Richards, good to have you with us. Good morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be with you this morning. And we know you're speaking from the few standpoint, not GAO, but in case people were curious about what you did, you know, in your daytime job. But you've been few president for a year now, so I'm sorry it took so long to get to you. What are the top issues you're thinking about these days in the few standpoint? Well, some of the challenges that we're looking at, one is what the future of work looks like, how to make a better government workforce. You know, when it comes to creating a better government workforce, few is a part of the solution and providing a four-pillar approach to help its members advance their careers through training, diversity, compliance, and legislative efforts. And when we began to look at the future of work, no one planned for a pandemic. We didn't know that a pandemic was coming. And so we're talking about the remote challenges that come with working in a remote environment for the last three years and now 
having to go back into the office, which is considered the future work, looking at how this is going to affect our membership as it relates to some of the members became teachers, counselors, school bus drivers, caregivers, and things like that for their family members. And how do they now incorporate this back into their work life of having to go back in the office with the commute? So many things that once was pre-pandemic. Yes, and it's not that clear-cut a picture like five days a week and you're in the office 10 days out of your pay period. But some agencies want four or five days out of the pay period. So that's half the time going in, half the time staying at home. And I imagine especially for women employees, because right or wrong, they tend to get the burden of worrying about the domestic issues. And so that's really complicated, isn't it? Because you don't have regularity anymore. Right. Absolutely. Generally, as you stated, the women are the glue to the family, as well as trying to have a career and taking care of the challenges that may come up with their children, with their loved ones that they're now taking care of. And, you know, in this DMV area that commute back and forth, getting back into that routine of things pre-pandemic, because three years of being out, it's kind of tough to get back into it, like you stated. Yes, and uh, everyone's wondering if nobody is in the office yet, why are the roads so jammed again? And that seems to be the cosmic mystery these days. I said the same thing Sunday traveling. I said, where is everybody going when we're at home? There should be any traffic. Nobody should be going north or south like this. Uh, you're totally right. All right. And just give us a little sense, uh, back up here for a moment, how many people are in few? How far back does the organization go? And tell us about how you connect with one another. Well, I am happy to say that FEW is 55 years old as of May. We started in 1968 with 13 members. Our very first president, Ms. Adler Latimer, is still living, still with us, still providing knowledge and wisdom over the years of about this grassroots organization. We are celebrating our 54th national training program coming up in July, which I'll cover at a later time. But we are still here looking at the challenges that are facing our members, as well as providing training opportunities, both in person, some virtual, some social, some service-oriented, all the activities that be a character and transferable skills. We have a number of webinars that we have been putting on as it relates to leadership and personal development. We are now moving back into an in-person national training program after three years of the virtual leadership summit. And then some of the chapters and regions are now having social meetups and they are continuing with community service. We're speaking with Pamela Richards. She's president of the Federally Employed Women's Group, uh, a year now into that presidency. And tell us more about the 54th training event in July. This is back in person, and where is it? And is it maybe hybrid also for those that don't want to travel? Well, it is not hybrid, I must say. We wanted to get a feel of how things would be in an in-person environment, we will be meeting in downtown Hilton Columbus Hotel. It's the host hotel, and we have a second hotel that is the Hyatt Regency that's just a small crosswalk away from the Hilton. And we'll be there July 9th through the 13th. We have over 110 classes slated for this week. It is our legislative theme this year, where we're leveling up for success and envisioning a new level. And we will be there with our award ceremony that we recognize all of our members for their hard work, as well as, as well as our military, who are pushing DEI and A efforts as well. And then we will have our mentoring graduation, which is another component of federally employed women, where we mentor, we have a cohort number two 
We're successfully graduating cohort two and looking forward to welcoming cohort number three. So we're excited about this in-person event. And as we use this as a benchmark of what we can do in person, I am actually looking at providing a hybrid event because of the demand and the questions about a hybrid event. I'll be looking to plan one for 2024. Yeah, it's no trivial affair having things in person and online when it comes to setting up all the technology and everything. How many people do you expect to attend? We are currently sitting at right below 600 that will be attending. Our footprint covers 10 regions all across the United States, as well as we do have about 2,800 members in our organization at this time. All right. And tell us some more about the membership. Does it range from, say, non-managerial line employees up to the higher levels? And does it also include members, I think you mentioned this, of the military or military-employed uh, women? Yes, sir. So anyone can be a member of federally employed women. As long as you support the mission and vision of this organization, and we have a large range of from top-level senior executive services who also serve as our executive champions, Within our chapters, as well as all the way down to that GS 6 or 7, we have private sector personnel who are members of this organization, military, as well as contractors. And we do also have men. We don't leave our men out. We are a diverse and inclusive environment. Everyone has a place here in federally employed women. All right. And uh, what do the women tell you nowadays? What are especially people entering the federal workforce Do you get the sense that maybe the opportunities, how do they compare, would you say, with the private sector in terms of acceptance as a woman and the ability to reach whatever your goals and talents permit you to reach without any kind of, you know, discriminatory impediment in the way? Better in government or industry? So some of the things that women have shared as far as our membership has shared with us is the challenge that is still there, that making the same amount of money as our male counterparts, breaking that glass ceiling having a seat at the table. And one of the things that I ran on in my campaign is not only do I want to equip the women to have a seat at the table, but I also want them to own the tables that they sit at. And so through that uh, is providing the premier training that we provide through, and the webinars that we provide throughout the year and making sure that this training is impactful and intentional that will help them and have transferable skills that will allow them to apply that to their personal and professional lives. The standard as well as coming back, you know, looking at reasonable accommodations after the pandemic, toxic workplace behaviors, and just women working together, being able to uh, navigate that and how to get promoted, how to excel now in a semi-hybrid and once virtual environment. So that is one of the major challenges is how do I excel when I don't have that sea touch and feel with my colleagues as well as my boss who I see every day? How do they know what I'm doing? Sure. And I imagine you get some good support, moral support anyway, from your agency because these types of activities take time and they must understand that this is important and it benefits them also, right? Absolutely. Our agencies are huge supporters. They're our allies. And we also partner with our federal women's program managers who are inside the agency where the agencies are required to have. And so we partner with them to find out the issues that are some are agency-specific and some are not. And those that are agency-specific, we try to assist them and provide resources for them. And then those things that affect women globally, we try to ensure that we are providing those resources to them as well. But our agencies are huge supporters. I can't thank them enough for supporting us throughout the year, especially during our national training program, by sending their members and entrusting us 
to bring about that premier training experience for them. Pamela Richards is the president of Federally Employed Women. She's also a supervisory investigative research analyst at the GAO, and she's not doing the few stuff. Hey, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you again for this opportunity. And all roads lead to Ohio. If you haven't registered, register, and I'll see you in July. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still ahead, how two agencies are squeezing the security clearance calendar. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. When we need help, we turn to government. When government needs help, they turn to Federal News Network. For news on the federal pay raise. To learn how other agencies handle IT modernization. To see how Congress funds my agency. For changes to my TRICARE benefits. Federal News Network. Helping feds meet their mission. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Agencies will soon receive guidance outlining updated goals for cutting security clearance vetting times for employment determination. Now, these new metrics are part of the Trusted Workforce 2.0 initiative of the Director for National Intelligence and the Office of Personnel Management. Federal News Network's Jason Miller got a progress report from a panel with program manager Matt Eanes of OPM and Jeffrey Smith, the program executive officer for the National Background Investigation Services. First, you hear from OPM's Eanes. We reduced that from 750,000 cases. It's now hovering around 157,000 cases. Uh, After that, we started turning our attention to new ways to do the work. That involved uh, rewriting and recrafting the majority of the policies. So that was really the focus of the work in 20 and 21. Then we quickly turned our attention, as Jason said, to getting folks enrolled into continuous vetting. And that was focused on just the national security sensitive population. So all those individuals with top secret and secret clearances, which is about 4.48 million folks are now enrolled in continuous vetting and was largely done pretty seamlessly, not completely seamlessly, but you're going to hear from Heather today, who had a big role in not making that a burden on industry. Now we're turning our attention to a new and exciting phase. So I just want to highlight what you're going to see for the next three years, and some of the uh, Jeff and Heather and myself will be able to answer more questions about these things as we go. If the focus of last year was getting everyone into continuous vetting for the national security population, The focus of this year is beginning our transition into INVIS, in particular, the transfer from EQIP to EAP. The focus for next year will be moving the continuous vetting model into the non-sensitive public trust population. So I know many of you are very heavy on the national security sensitive side, but the other half of our population is the non-sensitive population. So they'll begin their journey in 24. And then following in 25, you're going to start to see all the new products and the new model roll out as we move into three tiers and we move into the new forums and the new products. Uh, So that's kind of the big chunks of what's going to be happening each year. And as you see all of this activity that's happening, all the different piece parts, kind of anchor it back to these big phases of work that are happening iteratively each year. You mentioned the transition to MBIS. You mentioned the EQIP to EAP. How did that transition or how is it going? Is there anything you can tell us about the app so far, how it's working, uh, or or at least the plans uh, for for testing, piloting, and the like? Well, I'll defer a good portion of that to Jeff, who uh, coincidentally just popped on the camera to make sure I didn't talk too much about it. But I would like to brag on the work that's been done there for a moment 
we are starting to talk about the Envis rollout now, but most folks may not know that the first component of Envis was actually deployed last year or late the previous year with position designation tool. It's the first shared service that rolled out. It's where the process begins at the very front end and feeds everything behind it. While all of that was going on, Jeff and his team were really hard at work building the underlying EAP uh, architecture and piloting it for a good portion of the last year, kicking the tires. And they're now at the phase where they're beginning to significantly scale it. So I'll let him add in a bit more when we get to him on what the plan is. But what you're gonna see from now to the end of the year is a hockey stick in growth of submissions. And Jeff can correct me if I'm wrong, but we're well over 40,000 cases that have been submitted through EAP to date. So that the, the system's getting some good pressure testing. Yeah, maybe in fact, I'll pick up there, Matt, if you don't mind us. Actually, we're at 56,000 cases. 83 agencies are currently submitting at least one or more cases in the system. So that's 83 out of 103 federal agencies that have been completely onboarded and are currently in their, coming out of their training cycle. So we're pressure testing the system that started last March. Uh, just to carry you through that, we incrementally started with one form, iteratively brought one form online, the SF86. Uh, over the year, we brought on all four forms uh, and we've added pre-fill. So all of those muscle movements for the initiation review and authorize for case initiation are uh, fully active right now. And uh, perhaps what I will do is talk about what industry may or may not know or what's new. Uh, we talked a little bit about industry's uh, push uh, to scale from EQIP to EAP. But if you're not aware, I hope this is not the first time you're hearing it, that industry is full bore into Operation Popcorn or the transition of industry uh, with the same phased approach, fundamental push towards a one October date to bring industry across the threshold into case initiation. Now that's very deliberate with what I'm saying, case initiation, not the full bore use of all elements of Invis, but to get you across the threshold to let go of Equip and really start the case initiation process using Invis and the mechanisms that have been built in place for error checking and correction. Additional phases and capability will be bought on board deliberately for Invis, such as the DIS transition. But just so you hear it from me, it's expected that DIS will still be your foundational system as you start to cut across and start to use EAP versus EQIP. So nothing is going to change initially. And in very, in very short order, as we continue to mature, we will activate other elements of the system. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, appreciate you, uh, the tag team with Matt. It sounds like efforts you're doing around getting more agencies on board. And so I guess two quick follow-ups, uh, 83 out of 103. I imagine you, the other 20 agencies will be coming on board in the, in the coming months, coming year. What's going on now is a full court press. Uh, Matt mentioned it. Uh, we're uh, literally messaging uh, to the federal population to include DOD, full court press. They, they have phased dates. A grouping of them will uh, work to fully scale, not only onboard, but their sub-elements of their agency will scale in tranches of March 31st, June, and then uh, roughly by the 1st of September will be the third. And uh, the goal is to get all of the federal partners at scale, 115 federal agencies, not only onboarded, trained, and scaled by the, the fourth quarter of the year. So that's the big push there. Secondly, we worked through Operation Popcorn for Industry. 
We will also, first and foremost, industry is underway right now. You're in your prep time. Uh, much of the training for industry in getting case initiation established is being done through self-help portals, available training, uh, account provisioning, and essentially getting you to a point where you can cross the threshold. Industry should recognize that of the 13,000 agencies, there are a lot of small, uh, smaller organizations that are one deep. They submit less than uh, 12 cases a year, as an example, all the way up to our big partners, uh, Lockheed Martin, uh, Northrop Grumman, uh, those those companies have a whole different scaling problem or, or, or effort. So they're in different phases. It'll be easier for the smaller organizations, obviously. But as we get to some of our bigger organizations, more capability, more reports, more fundamental things that the larger companies are looking for will mature with the system and we'll bring them up to scale as well. But again, at the end of the day, our push is to get everybody into EAP, first tranche, both industry and federal by the fourth quarter of this FY. Matt Eanes, Director of the Performance Accountability Council Program Management Office at OPM. And you also heard from Jeffrey Smith, the Program Executive Officer for the National Background Investigation Services, speaking on a recent panel. Find more episodes of Ask the CIO. Subscribe at federalnewsnetwork.com. The Defense Department is tightening access to classified information in the wake of the Discord leaks. As widely reported, a Pentagon review found gaps in the oversight of information security policies and programs. Now Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is directing a bevy of new actions to address those issues. For an update, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And review for us, if you would, Justin, what the review exactly found. It had both cyber and physical access issues. Yeah, it basically found that while DOD relies on a culture of trust and accountability for those who are granted access to classified information, and the overwhelming majority of personnel actually meet that trust, there are gaps in the oversight and accountability measures of how DOD tracks folks who have access to classified information, how they track classified information facilities and things like that, where folks actually access that type of sensitive data. And again, this all came out after a review Secretary Lloyd Austin ordered in April. That was after 21-year-old Air National Guardsman Jack Teixeira was arrested for being the alleged perpetrator of these Discord leaks. And he's, of course, accused of sharing military secrets with his Discord forum users, including photographs of secret and top secret materials. So this DOD review didn't look exactly at the specifics of Teixeira's events, because that's subject to, of course, a court case right now. But it looked more broadly at where they could make some improvements. And what are some of the improvements they see ahead? What did Lloyd Austin specifically name here? Well, first, there's better tracking of personnel who have access to classified information. Austin is directing all DOD components to come up with a plan for ensuring that their personnel are included and accounted for in designated security IT systems. So they actually have a roster of those folks that's up to date. And then second, they should have a plan to assign all DOD personnel to a security management office where they specialize in security procedures so they know who exactly is in access. And then DOD also wants to centralize oversight of these different specialized classified facilities that are spread out at military bases across the country and the world. Austin is actually directing the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security to set up a centralized tracking system for both sensitive compartmented information facilities, SCIFs, 
and special access program facilities. So that's something that the Pentagon will be setting up here shortly. Yeah, that really recognizes the fact that you have a physical and cyber complex that's all mixed together. You have people handling things that are electronic in SCIFs, which are physical. And so I guess the policy recognizes this all works together as one whole system. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, to your point about physical and electronic, Austin is also directing DOD offices to ensure that they're actually budgeting for the technologies uh, that can detect electronic devices that might enter a SCIF, as well as mitigation measures that could block those devices from working in certain ways in a SCIF. This is something that they're required to have, but maybe they haven't done across the board. So that's one other thing that's happening here. And this is ultimately an insider threat of the nth degree, you, you know, with this uh, Texas uh, Air National Guardsman. And so it sounds like what they're doing is getting a handle on the insider threat itself, because this was not an external hacking situation or a phishing scheme. Austin is is really trying to uh, centralize oversight of the insider threat program and, and resources as well. He's directing DOD officials to come up with a plan within 90 days for establishing a joint management office for insider threat and cyber capabilities. So again, looking at that kind of blended threat with the cyber and digital aspect of these things in, in 2023. And that organization would oversee things like user activity monitoring, where you're really logging keystrokes and clicks and things like that, as well as improving threat monitoring in general across all DOD networks. You know, the Insider Threat Program has been around for a decade, but there's been questions about the extent to which, you know, DOD organizations have actually implemented those requirements. So clearly this new joint program office would put some more of a focus on that. And has there been any further discussion of the DOD's commitment to zero trust? This is something they say they're on a path to. The timeline is pretty far out there till they say they're all zero trust. But it seems like a zero trust mechanism might have prevented some of these documents from access by whatever game, you know, Teixeira was playing or whatever stupid social network he was on. Well, you know, this this review and the memo that Austin signed out directing all these actions didn't explicitly mention zero trust. But I should note that the DOD chief information officer's office is in charge of many of these taskings, including you know, user activity monitoring and enhancing accountability for and, and oversight of top secret information sharing. That CIO's office has made zero trust a major priority for DOD to reach by 2027. So they're going to be involved and I'm sure they're going to be pulling some zero trust aspects into all of this. And what about the security clearance process? Because the people you take in are ultimately the people you have to trust with all of this information. And is there anything they're looking at there and continuous vetting and all of this to uh, try to prevent some of this? Yeah, this is interesting. They did not, you know, mention the security clearance process uh, and changes that need to be made to the security clearance process too explicitly in the memo. But what they did do is direct the Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency, which conducts most clearance investigations across DOD, to set up a Pathfinder project with the Air Force, where they're going to look at ways to improve sharing continuous vetting information across all military departments. So obviously folks move between different organizations within their services. Oftentimes folks move from military to civilian to perhaps another service. And there's a lot of continuous vetting information 
criminal information, things like that that's picked up along the way. But it's not necessarily shared in every case across security departments, across all those different organizations. So that's one thing DCSA and the Air Force is going to look are going to look at as part of this Pathfinder project. And then, of course, there's the larger information sharing, the post 9-11 type of information sharing, not just about security, but about national security issues. And that could get pinched with this new regime that Lloyd Austin is talking about. Yeah, the Pentagon recognized that there have been concerns that the reaction to this incident could be an overreaction and they could clamp down on the type of information sharing that leads to obviously good outcomes. So the department in its memo or its fact sheet on this review explicitly says that it's mindful of the need to balance information security with requirements to get the right information to the right people at the right time, as a quote. And DOD says as it implements these new recommendations and actions, they're going to carefully guard against, quote, any overreaction, overcorrection, rather, that may impede progress on information sharing and these different operating models that allow DOD to successfully carry out its national defense strategy. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 